This call may be recorded or transcribed. Good morning, Ernest. Good morning, Ernest. Yeah, sorry for the delay. I uh, had to take a bio break. Figured uh, one of the, uh, I actually had my annual review uh, with my boss, and it was actually fantastic. He gave me some really concrete, actionable, feed, actionable feedback about uh, behavior patterns I have that have been causing unnecessary friction in the organization. And he did it in a really gentle, uh, you know, vulnerable way. Uh, but the, the basic theme was, I need to relax. And You need to relax. I need to relax. I need to not like be in such a hurry to make sure the right thing happens uh, mm. because if I push too hard, it actually uh, generates more friction. So, you're cutting out there. You, yeah, you cut out there for a minute. Ah, uh, okay. Is this better, by the way? Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah, my uh something seems to be happening with my AirPods where they're uh glitchy and so um I've Yeah. Yep. again hello yes so i glitched out there uh when i was trying to change from my headphones anyway uh, yeah the point i was making is that uh, my boss pointed out uh, a bunch of behaviors and i realized the common thread was that i feel this urgent pressure to get other people to see the problem the way i do and solve that um, which is effective in the short term sometimes but, in, but it also burns uh, sort of social capital and, you know, makes people feel unheard or bullied in the worst cases. And then that makes it harder to build the consensus necessary to solve the larger problems. Yeah. And so I, so the, uh, so the fact that I'm, I decided rather than kind of being in a pressured mode, I should, be late and take a bio break so that I am relaxed and not feeling stressed or in a hurry. And I need to maintain that sort of emotional equilibrium in order to actually be more fully present and able to engage people in a healthy way or a healthier way. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. a thing. Yeah. So anyway, um, yes. So you suggested, uh, which is a very good idea to have a pre-brief to plan our conversation at 4.30 with Anish Carve of Quilt Data. Okay, yes. And so, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts first or if I should go. Uh, no, 
You know him better than I do, so, you know. Yeah, so I've known Anish for uh, six years now, and mm -hmm. uh, he's been working on a data startup, and I've been an advisor for him for much of that time. But uh, interestingly, over the last six months, our company has started uh, exploring uh, doing some building a new data platform, I guess is probably the right way to frame it. And so I suddenly discovered I'm becoming a potential customer of theirs rather than just an advisor, which is a very different mm -hmm. perspective, right? Because beforehand I could mm -hmm. talk about general principles for good startup design, but now I can actually say, well, actually this is my problem and I need to understand how your tool might help me solve my problem and it's a, you know, sort of a subjective viewpoint rather than an objective one. And the reason I thought about them is I've been having several long conversations with them. And the data problem that I brought to him was that we, like many companies, tend to get into arguments over poorly defined words. Uh, so, you know, for yeah. example, the... Uh, for the example, the phrase uh, active device has a range of different meanings. Two of the most obviously different ones are uh, this piece of hardware is active in the sense of uh, talking to our backend systems versus uh, this particular hardware is uh, deployed to a customer and then therefore active in terms of billing, which are two uh, completely different senses of the word, which often overlap. Uh, but, you know, uh, what's interesting is that I discovered that different groups have an emotional attachment to their use of the word. Like, we're using this term correctly, and they, the others, are using it incorrectly. Do you and, have an example of that? Well, yeah, like, so, so just you know, hypothetically, this isn't exactly how it played out. But, like, so finance thinks of an active unit as one that is active for billing purposes. And then engineering thinks of an active unit as one that is talking to the back end. And if the finance people are running the data system, they'll say, well, clearly we should use the word active to refer to one that's active for billing purposes. Uh, and engineers uh, say, well, clearly we should yeah. use it to refer like that. And then, and then it's like, well, and so I'd say like, and then when I try to get people to like, be more precise to say, we'll say, no, this is the right definition. Everyone else should change the way they talk about it to avoid uh, confusing, you know, to avoid confusion. But, you know, the, the people don't want to, I say, you know, can we call this a billable unit and call that one a communicating unit, right? Because mm -hmm. from my perspective, words are just tools. And if a word is not working for you, you should just use a different tool. But what I, uh, getting back to my earlier point about, uh, not being a good listener is I fail mm -hmm. to realize that people have an emotional investment in their use of words and that if yep, you I, try to redefine mm -hmm. those words, it, it, it comes across as violence. Yeah. I experienced that firsthand. <laughs> well, I know what you're talking about, you know, uh, yeah. uh, as, a as a documentation writer, you know, you yes. work with the engineering team and they have this word and for this new technology and the word is simple, it's cool. And I'm like, but, but that's not, uh, uh, it's not right. It's not uh, the term in other realms is 
is is viewed as a negative. So I'm like, we shouldn't use that. But you know, in the end, we decided to keep the word. But uh, yes, it it can bring strife. Like you could be the black sheet of the of the team because you know, well, in that particular case, as a doc writer, I was I didn't work with the engineering team. You know, I wasn't embedded in there. So yeah. in another building, um, you know, I have a, a different set of uh, coworkers. So you're the outsider, even though the this is a uh, you know the, the team is supposed to be multifaceted, or you know, there's engineering, there's the uh, QA uh, programmers and all that, and then there's the documentation, and then there's mm-hmm. other you know DevOps and all those all those teams. So you're supposed to build a cohesive hyper team, let's call it that, that is made up of all these other people. Uh, but it's real hard unless you, you know, hang out with them at lunch and, you know, they see you all the time, unless that's the case, in which case, as a writer, I could get a, 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 a be in the, in the milieu and I can uh, uh, gather the team's love for particular terms. But I didn't have that. What I had is like, hey, let's go investigate this technology. Let's find out what they, those people use, the kind of words that they use. And sometimes the merging is not um, successful, but to uh, address the needs of actual possible customers, you should take into account, okay, what do people call this in general, you know, out there? I know we have our own name. What is the community, or more precisely, what is the community of people we are trying to reach? What word will most accurately communicate this in a way that gives them a useful idea of what we mean? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and you know that's hard. Uh, you know, a lot of engineers they're trained in there. There is a right answer. Like this is the objectively <laughs> right word. You know, yeah. and that is their worldview. And exactly. Because you know, in engineering, when you're doing math, you know, there is well, even math has its dark secrets. But you know, at any yeah. given point in time, there's at least the concept of the objectively right way to do something, given a certain set of constraints and a certain context. Um, and but context the, is the key word right there. Context. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. Engineering, uh, uh, um, like computer science, does not uh, have a formal way to represent context. And you know that was yes. one of the big shifts from Newto- Newtonian to relativistic physics, which was quite a hard mm-hmm. emotional pill for people to swallow. Was the idea that well, actually, there are certain things that transcend context, but very few. And even mm-hmm. things like mass, energy, time, and space are actually contextual things, not absolute things. Ironically, that was one of the things that was part of the uh, grief that Newton got when he invented uh, gravity and you know, modern, phys- uh, you know, modern physics, basically, was he, in order to make this work, he had to uh, propose the idea of infinite action at a distance. That somehow the sun and the, the moon and the earth uh, were just linked together by these invisible threads uh, with nothing connecting them, and you know we now know that was wrong. But and at the time it was hugely scandalous that he would suggest that because well, clearly you got to touch something in order to affect it. And mm-hmm. you know so they, they you know it, anyway I'm getting off on a weird tangent, but yes, um, objectivity and context have been wrapped up in philosophy and science and a lot of our conflicts are due to our inability to think clearly about it 
because we are emotionally attached to our personal context. And we even may think that it's objectively better or more valid than others, other contexts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, the, the punchline of all this is that like this problem of getting people to agree on the definitions of words feels like uh, a, the hard problem, my friend, so the hard problem that I have in my company that I was hoping my friends, or I'm curious whether my friend's technology will help us solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, uh, this is a marketing challenge that he has in that he has to figure out how they, they've got some really good technology, uh, but their marketing is less compelling than many of their peers. And, mm. you know, I don't even fully understand how his solution uh, is superior to other solutions. I have a few hints here and there, which give me some hope that they might have a significant differentiation from other people in this space. But I haven't even uh, thought it through in my own head enough that I'm convinced of it, much less had him explain it to me in a way that I feel makes for a compelling marketing pitch, even though we made a progress in a bunch of terms. But anyway, the, the interesting thing is like, huh, okay, his problem is how to get a group of people who are part of the same ecosystem, if you will, uh, but each individual tribe within that ecosystem has their own peculiar way of defining things, and they don't like the fact that other people misuse those terms from their perspective. <laughs> but in order, you know, as a someone who has responsibility for the, the ecosystem as a whole to be productive, I need to get them speaking a common language uh, and agreeing on some basic uh, premises, uh, so that we have a shared vocabulary, so we can make decisions together that are sort of globally optimal, rather than ones that are locally optimal and globally suboptimal. And you know, when I frame it in that abstract way, it sounds very much like the problem we've been talking about. So how do we get people? You know, can we use an appropriate form of documentation to give people, you know, autonomy within their own spaces, but enough of a shared culture to make globally optimal decisions. Mm-hmm. So that's now, kind of uh, what I got here. That's, mm-hmm. what, so that's, what, that's, why, that's why this makes sense in my head, <laughs> but whether that actually mm-hmm. makes sense, uh, the, the challenge, I guess, in this call, is figure out how to talk about this so that you and I and Nish can actually have a coherent conversation rather than three separate conversations. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, just a short interjection here. We talked about uh, that idea uh, of, uh, you know, one of my uh, uh, crazy ideas is to write this uh, document format or document thing. Mm -hmm. First, a writer can uh, put as much info in there so that it's a super defined document that you know, it could be document slash database slash all kinds of things. That it's smart mm-hmm. enough that mm-hmm. the writer, I mean, the reader can either read the document as as a, a, a an object produced by the writer and some sort of agent that uh, uh, for the reader that says, okay, these are the writer's concepts and these are you know the, the writer's uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Definitions right. and concepts and uh, contexts. So, and then we can get to the reader. Context. 
okay, this is the, the reader's context uh, or hyper context, and then the document is computed according to the reader's uh, uh, context. And for example, uh, your example, uh, it's an active device. So yeah. if the reader is reading it in the context, it needs to be determined that the context is, I don't know, deployment, whatever. So yeah. in the writer specified, okay, in the deployment context, active devices, this and that. And then if the writer also wrote something about uh, active device in other contexts, then uh, you know you have two contexts in there. And then whatever the reading is, the reader is reading, if it's in the in either or of those of uh, either of those two concepts, contexts, contexts, uh, then the reader sees the appropriate terminology. I mean, this is you know we're talking about computerizing document uh, uh, definition writing and also. Mm -hmm. Reading, you know, uh, if you computerize everything in the writing and the reading and the processing of the contexts, then that's why we get something that's, you know, more smart than what we have right now. I'm not going to say super smart, but it's, you know, it's, it's more smart. It's Smarter. Like two readers yeah. are reading this. Yeah, smart. Two readers, two readers can be reading the same doc, uh, you know, okay, yeah, reading the same document, but they see a difference because of what they know and the, and the concepts that they are uh, involved in, contexts. Yeah, so let me call, let me label that a context-aware document. Because I think that to me is the heart of your insight, is that you want to be able to embed the writer's context in the document and in a way that the reader's context can, uh, th that'll get remapped into the reader's context in a mm -hmm. way that maximizes the poss possibility of understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Just before, you can sort of guarantee readability, but you can't really guarantee understandability. But the more mm -hmm. you are aware of context, the greater potential for understanding. Yes. yes. Right, and I think yes. that's interesting is that the, this is adjacent to the problem that my friend has to solve. And what's interesting is, is what I thought might be a good framework for the discussion with him is we kind of lay out like the story that got us here. And I said, you know, it sounds like there's uh, two things that uh, are interesting in, in the problems he is trying to tackle. One is that there is a political or social process that an entity has to go through in order to get to this sort of data reconciliation or shared vocabulary for describing things of common interest. And the second thing is that he is trying to build a technical platform that facilitates or embodies that process of social reconciliation. And it was good, you know, partly this is like a sort of a commercial. He can talk about his company and his product, and you know, he can talk about how he looks at the problem and we can kind of help him think through how he solves it. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, I want to make sure he's getting some value for himself. You know, he, hopefully he's getting some sense in, you know, we are helping them uh, uh, focus the aspirations of his company and celebrate that and also help him think through some of these issues. The other thing that's interesting, though, is that there are different technical uh, tools and techniques that they employ 
in order to achieve their goal, which I'm interested in learning more about. And I think that'll enrich our vocabulary. Like one of the concepts he's mentioned, which is a buzzword uh, in the data space this day is lineage. And mm -hmm. similar to the way I, I used to hear web people talk about provenance in that you want to know how this data got here. So, you know, one example of this is like, you could have a definition of what the word active means in mm -hmm. English words, or you could have a history that shows you the actual SQL queries. It's like, okay, taking this set of data here and you apply these rules and that's how we got this column here labeled active. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and, and then there's sta open standards and open source projects, thing, a thing called open lineage, which is uh, designed to provide a common um, framework, I guess, for describing these lineages. And, you know, that's an interesting uh, uh, different, that, that, that's a, a lineage is uh, equivalent to, but different than a definition, right? Mm -hmm. Is, you know, it, it is a similar way. It's like, okay, given a set of raw data objects, then this is how we constructed this higher order term. And like, that is kind of like a definition, right? You, you have to assume a certain set of words and then you define that are understood. And then you're trying to build a definition out of those other words. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's an interesting perspective on, because that's one of the questions that you know, I'm curious about is, uh, to what extent can you digitize context? Right? How do you create something mm -hmm. that's both human readable and machine readable? And uh, I don't know how much we can do, but it seems clear we ought to be able to do better than we do now. Yes. And it also seems clear we need to have even a way to think about how good we are doing so we don't uh, blindly fall into the, I mean, the, 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 the first danger is to have you know, no context. But the worst danger is to think you have the correct context and be mm. certain of it and have it not actually be correct, right? So there's this weird uh, confidence problem is that you want to build a system that people, I think we talked about this before, that people trust enough mm -hmm. that they use it, but that they don't trust so much that they uh, idolize it, right? Is that mm. we need to keep this sort of, uh, um, scientific tentativeness about our conclusions. Like, yeah, we believe this is true, but we also understand that that belief is fallible mm -hmm. and that we have to continually make this human judgment of like, okay, is this good enough that I can take this decision or uh, I have enough anomalies accumulated that I need to step back and question my certainty and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, revisit it because, uh, so anyway, these are all, and one of the things that is interesting about the way Quilt approaches the problem, which is different than I've seen other groups do it, is that, um, at least I, I've heard the claim, I don't know how they do this in practice, is that they don't just keep track of, actually, no, they actually have uh, released a feature that embodies this, which is that you can say that in order for this data set to be considered complete, it doesn't just need to have all these raw data inputs. It may also require some human input, like a commit message mm -hmm. or a you know passing test or whatever. And the idea that the human in the loop is an integral part of the system mm -hmm. is something that has often been absent 
from conversations around artificial intelligence and machine learning and solid data. And I'm curious that uh, th there's something there that is intriguing. And again, I don't know how robust and thorough it is, but it matches sort of the intuition we've had that, you know, the, the real hard problems are human problems. But if you have better data and better tools, then you can focus, you know, your human energy on those human problems rather than mm -hmm. being distracted by all the mechanical uh, minutia. Exactly. Yeah. And then the last like, thing I was uh, thinking of, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no you go ahead. No, the, the last thing I was thinking of is that one way to frame this conversation and these interviews is the word datocracy. And I just find that much easier to pronounce than docucracy. And I think for at least this cast of characters and possibly in a general marketing sense, I wonder if that's a uh, easier um, framing to say, you know, hey, you care about data and about helping people use data uh, effectively to, you know, help organizations run more efficiently and be more effective. Uh, mm -hmm. We're interested in the potential of changing the way we think about and work with data to improve democracy, to make it more participatory and humane. And we're using mm -hmm. this label mm -hmm. of datocracy to talk about this vision of how we can use data in the service of a better democracy. And that's the conversations we want to have. We understand the, the, the tools, mindsets, and techniques you use for managing data and for helping organizations use data and documentation. And then we kind of use that as the framing for our conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, that uh, it's very good. It's very uh, that way we have this is such a huge problem that we are thinking about. So we have like try to you know you know more simple simple aspects of it at a time. You know, the data is not simple, but uh, it's just you know we have to separate it from the other social problems, right? That you know we try to solve. But yeah, just uh, focusing on the data aspect and how to uh, you know make it more uh, valuable in that you know you can get extract or even compute meaning out of it is, is what we have to do. Just like a, we have tools that diff documents, right? You know, it's very, uh, uh, comparison that any tells you, okay, you, we have tools uh, for coders, you know, that diff two programs or diff oh, right, two, yeah. two text files. So we should have some similar tools that say, hey, you know, there's are two documents, but the context is that they use are, you know, similar, but there are so different in here uh, so that it takes in, into account those things. Like uh, one, okay, one simple solution to your pro active device pro problem is to prefix, prefix it with whatever context is talking about. So uh, uh, when somebody who's not part of that context sees it, that person read, will see that prefix. And it would, you know, so it would say deployment active device because the person is outside that that context, and we have to help that person know what we're talking about. Uh, and as soon as that person goes to the other context, uh, it, the you know, I don't know, whatever personal device context, right? So a, a person may have multiple devices, and some of them are active, some of them are inactive. What does that mean? 
it could be a bunch of things. It could be there's no service, there's bad, uh, you mean, uh, cell phone service, so it's inactive, even though they have they are part of Wi-Fi. It could be just network. So whether using Wi-Fi or the cell service, uh, if it's not connected, it's inactive. When it's connected to one, then it's active. So contexts are so many, and you know it can be interrelated or, or contained that we need a computing system to manage all these things to help uh, readers and writers manage these things so that uh, uh, in the end we everybody benefits especially the readers right so, uh, that don't have to read extraneous words but that see the the terms that most uh, effectively will help them understand what they, they're reading yeah and the interesting thing is that um and this is, is that like in theory like that so suddenly the idea of having like different like formally acknowledging context is essential right to say that mm -hmm. look you don't get to make claims about absolute reality you have to define that you're defining things within a context clearly that seems like the only way to move forward but that in itself mm -hmm. is sort of an act of violence or at least an act of imposing structure and saying you know like for example uh my favorite word is this word marriage which you know over the last mm -hmm. 20 years there's been all sorts of political debates about this and like mm -hmm. you know, i would think well why can't we just call it gay marriage and christian marriage and civil marriage and just have different terms for these different things but people say mm -hmm. no we have the right to define this and if you call us a partnership instead of a marriage you're dissing us right and you know there's uh the and so the interesting question for me is precisely uh how do we create the moral legitimacy for someone to establish those contexts and that was the question that kind of left the niche with last time is like okay what are the roles that are necessary to move a situation from this sort of data anarchy where everyone's fighting over terms into this streamlined state and we need something like a sheriff or somebody who kind of blows the whistle and says stop let's you know segregate you or partition you into different uh namespaces and then you guys kind of work out your own business and then we reconcile them and it's like okay that seems like the thing that has to get done but then what is the uh sort of moral political social relational realities that need to be in place for that to be successful and yeah and i think and, that, 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 yeah sorry go ahead go ahead and and finish your sentence there. so yeah so that's kind of where we left it is that like okay oh. it seems clear that we're getting a sense for what the process needs to be at a technical level but i'm still trying to understand what the process needs to be at a social level because that's usually why these things don't happen is because we have um, good design patterns for solving technical problems, but we don't have good design patterns for how we solve the social problems. And all of our training for those of us who were trained in a technical field is we spend like 95% of our time on the technical problems. And if you're lucky, 5% on the social problems. Mm -hmm. But ironically, the, uh, the tools are becoming more democratic and more accessible mm -hmm. and more usable and efficient and performant. So realistically, I spend 80% of my time on social relational communication problems and maybe 20% of my time on technical problems. Mm -hmm. 
but my, my social relational problems have horrible tooling, very unclear concepts. Like, I don't even know how to think about the problems well, much less mm. know the best way to solve them. And that's the, um, the thing is like, you want to own the whole problem, not just throw something over the wall and insist that people figure it out. Then you have to get inside people's heads and understand what they need in order to be able to execute that task, right? That, this is what Apple was a genius at and basically invented the whole concept of user experience. Mm -hmm. You say, okay, it's not about what, you know, the task that the users do, it's the objective they want to achieve and how mm -hmm. to give them the things that make it easy and even pleasant for them to do. Like, you know, the way Apple took on the problem of backups with time capsule, mm -hmm. even though it was mm -hmm. kind of a weird product and time machine, you know, it's kind of bizarre. The fact that Apple took that on, you know, kind of sent a moral message like, Hey, this is a problem. It's not your fault for being lazy or cheap. It is uh, our business to help you solve that problem in a way that works for you. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that sort of mental shift is a hard one. And, you know, uh, I guess the good news is that like the fact that we are willing to take this on and say, you know, Hey, uh, we're not going to just sit around cursing everyone for the fact that capitalism sucks and, you know, our society is riddled with injustice. We'll say, you know, hey, this is our problem to solve and we're mm -hmm. not very good at it, but we are willing to own that and iterate towards a solution. And we would love to have anybody share what insights and best practices they have. And, and maybe that's the, the biggest thing we can do is create sort of a shame-free zone for owning this problem. Mm -hmm. And letting people, you know, own just the pieces of the problem that they care about and then we try to figure out how to fit them together into this larger uh, social fork of society. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, marriage. You mentioned that. Um, we cannot solve that problem, I, I think, uh, because uh, marriage is not just, it will be like a super word, a super term. Like, uh, it has like a very similar meaning across a whole bunch of uh well uh, so marriage to a uh, gay couple is okay, we're married right marriage to some sort of ultra religious uh group is marriage between two members of our you know group right, or more, it could be right that. depending on the group right oh, oh yeah Oh, yeah, or, or more, yeah. Right, so, the, so yeah, we consider, more, yeah. like, you know, polygamy, child marriage, right, depending on different cultures and contexts, and even in different contexts in different parts of the Bible, what counts as marriage is, you know, there's a commonality to it, but it's also different, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. we consider some forms legitimate and some forms not. Uh, and so that's why it's a hard problem. But it's like, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's something that people have an enormous emotional investment in, right? Literally, exactly. I mean, our culture, yeah. spend, you know, the, the wedding industry is enormous. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the marriage industry is arguably less prominent than the wedding industry. But between marriage counseling and couples retreats and date nights, and if you include all the matchmaking and hookup, I mean, like, and there's this whole continuum between matchmaking and hookup apps and, you know, are those mm -hmm. all considered the same type of dating, right? So the, there's a lot of complicated contexts that people bring to 
what seems like a relatively simple word. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and I'm thinking of the people who maintain and write dictionaries, you know, like Webster's. How yeah. do they do that? They have to include, in some definitions, they include context. They have to say in the, in the context of whatever, whatever it means that. But I see it in very few words. But some words, they do have long definitions, and then they specify, you know, it, it, it usage in certain groups. They don't call it context, but they, they say, you know, among the... Right. So this is the thing that's interesting is that a dictionary is a ref and this is, you know, there's two schools like when we grew up, we uh, we were kind of taught like the dictionary is the right way to use a word. And if you use it differently, mm. the dictionary is wrong. But the reality is, if you study it and you talk to people who actually write the dictionary, it's like, no, dictionaries are a reflection of usage. That's exactly, the only way to yeah. define a word is how it's actually been used. And mm -hmm. you can kind of say that, well, you know, in 1600s, they use it like this. And this is the Oxford English Dictionary Project, is that you could track how the word was used differently in different centuries. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, someone wrote a book where they used the word a certain way, and that became the norm for what that word meant in that context. Right? Mm -hmm. And and the reality, and this is one of these, um, I had one of these moments, uh, do you ever see the movie The Matrix? Yes, of course. Yeah. Several times. Uh, yeah, I thought about that a lot. Is that there's a scene at the end where he suddenly sees the world as a series of codes rather than this mm -hmm. solid three dimensional reality. And I had a moment like that with one of my therapists before I broke her, where I said, you know, I just realized words are like soap bubbles. You know, mm -hmm. we think they're solid and real, but really they're this microscopically thin layer that encloses uh, empty space. Mm -hmm. But we can treat them as if they're real things. And I realize I see words that way. I see words as these little soap bubbles that are really kind of ephemeral. Um, but I mean, other people think of them as solid reality. And when I start popping bubbles, they get deeply disturbed because <laughs> it breaks the illusion. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like at the end when he gets the superpowers and he starts, you know, he, and, he, and I realize that that's kind of the, the, uh, the disturbing thing about this project is that things mm -hmm. that people just assume are these solid building bricks of their reality. We're saying, well, you know, they aren't really. Um, and, mm -hmm. and in fact, that's the only way that we can learn to deal with each other's differences to say, you know, hey, these things that we think of reality, okay, that's a useful context, right? It has worked well for you for some definition of well for a while. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, if we're gonna get through this, we've gotta get through this together. And that means we've got to accept the fact that other people's reality is different than ours. And mm -hmm. in the short term, that's okay. And in the long term, that's a benefit. And maybe that's actually the key thing that the, this role at the center is to say, you know, hey, I choose to draw my circle, but I consider all of you part of my reality. And all of your realities are valid and useful to contribute into this uh, this meta reality we're trying to construct together. Mm -hmm. And you, you have to be able to give people that sense of emotional security. So they're willing to let go of their death grip on their reality in order mm -hmm. to uh, uh, blend into this larger meta reality. And it is, um, 
it is the thing we have to do. And the good news is that we get to practice this with each guest we have because they will mm. have to explain our reality to them in a term that they can understand why they're even here. And then we have to be able to create a safe space for them to articulate their reality and then figure out like how it all lines up and like, oh, this tool here maps to this practice over here or use this word to mean X, we use it to mean Y. That's really helpful to understand the difference. And like, so that, so this is, this is, this is, you know, version one <laughs> of our oh, zero. to build this meta reality. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'll say my version zero. zero. Version zero was you and me, right? Oh, okay. we, You know, yeah. right? Let's, you know, just let's call that version zero is you mm. and I coming up on something, you know, datocracy, uh, docucracy, whatever it is. It's like, okay, this is a thing that makes sense as a thing we can build together that might you know, address the problems we both care about in the areas they overlap. And mm. it's like, okay, now can we uh, explain it to other people in a way that gets them to contribute to it and mm-hmm. you know it takes the and the, the thing we have going for us is that we are vague and clueless and so we are open <laughs> to a lot of things and we don't feel like we have to defend um the mechanics or our definitions we just have the shared vision of participatory humanistic democracy uh, mm-hmm. as this vague thing that is superior to what we have now and we need something like this for civilization to move forward yeah yeah it's uh yeah it's correct and um i, I was going to say something anyway uh yeah i want i was going to say that we cannot solve the problem entirely like for example marriage we cannot yeah. solve that is it is unsolvable so you can say we can have special words that okay marriage means uh it, well we can we can mark it label it as a uh right term that has a high emotional investment and a term that we have to treat uh, uh well which we, actually we should treat like we should treat every other word which is like in the general terms and saying that we we are not the ultimate arbiters each group is that, that arbitrary so we, we can uh, uh, build a computable thing of terms and words and contexts. Like, and for us, that approach is is okay because we are not married to any term. We just <laughs> comp- <laughs> yeah, okay, great. That's a great. Yeah, right. So, so, right. So, there are technical. I think the way there are technical solutions yeah. that can work. The thing is, is that. They require sort of digitizing things and breaking them apart. It's like, well, you know, the gay community can use one term, and then the Christian community can use another term. Well, wait a second. What if I'm a gay Christian? Like, you know, who gets to use the term Christian? Or, mm-hmm. you know, if someone who says, well, I'm a recovered homosexual, the gay community say, well, you don't count. Well, it's like, okay, this is like even the metal labels that we use require there being some sort of. Um, and this is actually the problem, one of the problems that he was talking about, which uh, we call the isolation or partition problem. Is you, to, you need to sort of be able to break the problem down into homogeneous groups, agree to A, self-regulate within the group, so they agree on a common vocabulary, and then mm-hmm. B, federate into this larger space. And that okay. is, yeah. I think, necessary is the only way to move forward, but it is extremely hard uh, in the general case 
and understanding why and when it's hard and when and why it's feasible, when it's not feasible, mm-hmm. uh, what qualities of the orchestrator um, or, you know, whatever the role we call it, I call it the organizational therapist <laughs> or organizational mm-hmm. data therapist um, is because um, this is actually very much like mindfulness. It's like you have to kind of look at this jumbled mass of feelings and emotions and kind of mm-hmm. tease it apart into its components and validate each one individually and then say, okay, but then how do we get you to play nicely with all the other emotions and beliefs in your own head so that you mm-hmm. actually as an entity can move forward? Um, so that's the, and, and maybe that's, that's my favorite framing is this idea of organizational data therapy uh, but I don't know if that those words or that concept resonate. Um, but yeah, even again, like, think, yeah, and then yeah, yeah, I think the the word therapy in there is gonna is gonna cause problems. I I just see it therapy. What do you mean? Right. Am I uh, well, uh, uh, am, am I crazy or, or you know do do I need to uh, change my terminology because you say so or you know. Uh, right. Yeah. I think that's, there's the punchline there is that no word mm. is perfectly safe in all contexts or perfectly understandable. Yes. Yeah. So the question mm-hmm. is, is that like, so in the, you know, so level zero, if you and I understand what we mean, right. And then we, then we have to find mm-hmm. a word that like helps us think clearly about it. And then we have to go through the, uh, the process of trying to understand where other people are at. That, uh, that's the, uh, this is why your, your problem is so hard is that this this wise document, the context aware document mm-hmm. is that, you know, when you're creating something, you start from the creator outwards, right? Like I have mm-hmm. this thing I want to say and whatever, but if you're trying to help someone, you kind of need to start from like, they talk about this in product discovery, right? You have to start from the customer uh, inwards, Right. You have mm-hmm. to look at that person and see them as they are, not just as a cog to be fitted into your machine. Right. And then understand their context and then say, how do I produce something? Ah, this is the this is the, the magic uh, next level of your context aware documents is where a reader can describe their their context so well that the writer uh, rewrites the document entirely to achieve the uh, thing that the reader actually wants, right? Which is, you know, product mm-hmm. market fit, right? It's like, oh, mm-hmm. um, I realize that my product is not serving you. So rather than trying to use my monopoly power to force you to consume my product, I am going to reinvent my product to solve the problem you actually have versus the one I thought you had. And there, that's why mm-hmm. you need a sort of ecosystem where actually in some, at the second level, the contexts are primary and the documents are secondary, right? And you can imagine mm-hmm. different versions of documents and an ecosystem of documents that meet the, the customer's uh, actual context. And there has to be this ineffable, uh, like, like us, for us, the, the PhD, the Participatory Humanistic Democracy, that's the ineffable thing that we can barely describe and can't really explain, but it's like, you know, a world where everyone is treated with dignity and they can flourish and Mm -hmm. we can somehow reconcile local autonomy with um, global culture 
the, of continuous improvement. You know, that's this vision we have of how uh, we would like the world to become. Um, and you and I will keep iterating <laughs> with different mm-hmm. contexts and formats, but we, let's like, okay, for this season, you know, or to end this phone call and move forward somewhere, we're going to do this as a podcast with random technical, political friends I have who seem to care about things similar to this. And we'll see where we go. And then, you know, we just keep iterating. Yeah. We will. All, All right. right. Oh. Yeah, Thank I'm you. glad you insisted on having this call. I think it definitely gives us a clearer context in which to welcome mm-hmm. our first guest this afternoon. And we will see where we go from there. Yeah. See you this All afternoon. Right. God bless you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you. You too. Bye.